Hello, welcome to DPAC Casts, a podcast series hosted by the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame. My name's Ted Barron. I'm the executive director at the DeBartolo Center. And for this series, Indie Film, we're looking at a collection of some of the greatest American independent films of the late 20th century and into the 21st century. Uh, This week, we touched down in 1977 with Charles Burnett's seminal film, Killer of Sheep. When people think about black cinema in the 1970s, the obvious point of reference for most people is probably the black exploitation movement, which not only empowered African-American talent at an unprecedented level, but it also proved extremely profitable for the film industry. While this was a huge success for many black filmmakers, black actors, and other, and other talent, uh, a group of st- film students in UCLA were coming together with new ideas about the cinema, which was informed both by Western traditions of neorealism, most notably coming out of Italy, and the more radical approaches of African and Latin American third cinema. This group, alternately referred to as the Los Angeles School of Black Filmmakers, or more succinctly and provocatively, the L.A. Rebellion, was a collective that remained largely unrecognized as a movement until maybe 30 years after its first films were being produced. Among the talents associated with the L.A. Rebellion were filmmakers like Julie Dash, Holly Jarima, Billy Woodbury, and the filmmaker whose work I'm going to discuss in more detail— Uh, for this episode of the podcast, Charles Burnett. Uh, The L.A. Rebellion group has come to be recognized not only for their collaborative approach. uh, Many of the filmmakers continue to work together well after their time on campus uh, as film students. But more importantly, uh, these were films that provided an honest and and deeply sensitive portrayal of the African-American experience in the late 20th century. If we look at a group of films that were made beginning in the 1970s and continuing up through the early 2000s. The film that's often considered the masterpiece of the LA Rebellion is Killer of Sheep, which was first made in 1977. I say first made because it's a film that sort of sat for a while. It was commercially unreleased uh, for, for about 30 years. It played on college campuses and museums in more kind of non-commercial settings. I was fortunate to see the film for the first time in the mid-1990s in a graduate school class on American independent film. That class was a total game changer for my own interests in uh, American independent cinema. It opened, exposed me to so many uh, great works. But the film itself, I, it, within the film itself, I could see that this was something that really was breaking new ground. Killer of Sheep is an observational portrait of life in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles, a neighborhood that is probably best known or or, uh, sort of infamously known for the riots that occurred in the 1960s, a period that uh, uh, an area that's faced great economic hardship uh, and and struggle over the years. And within that uh, experience, we uh, meet a character named Stan, who's played by Henry Gale Sanders. Stan is a slaughterhouse worker who becomes increasingly engaged, uh, increasingly alienated, not the opposite of engaged, uh, from the brutality of the work that he does. 
on uh, at the slaughterhouse. Uh, we see, you know, some 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 fairly graphic depictions of what that uh, experience is like, where we see he and other uh, he and his other coworkers uh, slaughtering animals and um, going about their which is essentially daily work for them. Um, this experience of his of his work life is seen is is. Uh, coupled with uh, scenes of Stan's life at home, uh, which is uh, where we see Stan interacting with his wife, who's played by the amazing Casey Moore, who sadly passed away last year, um, and his two children, his son and his daughter. Uh, While the family's economic struggles, uh, because, you know, working in a slaughterhouse is not uh, the most most lucrative field, the, you know, this would be perfect fodder for uh, melodrama, you know, to see, you know, kind of the family sort of struggle to, to make ends meet and, and, face challenge, and face challenges. In fact, you know, drawing from Italian neorealism, the neorealists often did work in some more melodramatic elements to, to evoke really strong reactions, uh, you know, from, from viewers. But Burnett takes a radically different approach. Uh, this is a more intimate – this is a very intimate portrayal of uh, much smaller moments in these characters' lives. Um, he's very good with how he works with um, the children within the film. We see lots of scenes of kids uh, hanging out with each other. Um, uh, they throw rocks at trains. They jump across rooftops, um, really for lack of anything better to do. Uh, but these you know, sort of kind of ordinary moments uh, are often uh, the film's most compelling ones. Uh, probably the the most uh, dramatic scene within the film, although you know to look at it as it's framed, to look at it out of context might not seem so, is when Stan and a friend of his decide to purchase a used car engine, uh, you know from uh, you know from someone that they know, and the film follows the you know sort of detailed process of their negotiation to to buy the engine. Um, we see them carry the engine uh, out of the uh, out of the other person's apartment, um, which is of course atop a, a set of very steep stairs. Um, and then they uh, uh, essentially uh, place the the engine uh, into the back of a pickup truck, uh, which leads to. An incredibly dramatic moment, but again, incredibly understated at the same time. Uh, which you know, what if you settle into uh, the style of the film, can provide as much narrative tension as a Hitchcock movie. But in order to get to these kinds of experiences, uh, you really have to reset your expectations and allow for these smaller details to have um, uh, more, you know, sort of monumental impact. And I think part of the reason why this movement's been overlooked is it's taken. Uh, not only audiences, but the critical community some time to, to come around on, on, on the significance of these achievements. Killer of Sheep was shot over a series of weekends uh, for a ridiculously low budget of $10,000, uh, some of which was grant funded, but a lot of it was kind of pieced together from uh, friends and family who, you know, who, helped, uh, who helped Burnett across the finish line. And in terms of its uh, release as a film, um, it was, you know, largely um, limited to non-commercial screenings. Um, it, re- it, but it did receive the Critics Award at the 1981 Berlin Film Festival, and was eventually added to the National Film Registry in the U.S. in 1990 as a film of historical significance. Um, so during this time, though, the film was 
as as noted, you know, largely underseen, you know, n- not really given a lot of critical attention, and it in it was part of a revival. It, it was, the revival of the film ultimately began in the year 2000, thanks to the great work of the folks at the, U, uh, the UCLA Film and Television Archive and archivist Ross Lipman, um, who oversaw a restoration of the film. Originally, the film was only available uh, in fairly beat up 16 millimeter prints. The film was shot on 16 millimeter film. Um, and, and distributed on, in that format. Um, but uh, through UCLA's efforts, they were able to um, uh, kind of restore uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the scenes from the film and then ultimately produce a 35-millimeter print, uh, which made it possible for the film to get uh, distributed much more widely. Um, I had the good fortune to see Charles Burnett introduce the film at a, at a screening around this time, around the time of the restoration. And... Um, you know, interestingly, you know, the film itself is noted for its very understated qualities. Burnett himself is a very soft-spoken uh, person, um, you know, very modest in terms of his achievements, but also very passionate about, uh, in, in that sort of soft-spoken way, passionate about the work that he's done. So with that 2000 restoration, uh, it still took uh, a, a period of about another seven years uh, to get the film ready for theatrical distribution. And this had, uh, this had much to do with the film's uh, uh, music rights. There, there are several popular songs, uh, uh, sort of classic songs that you'll hear within the film. Etta James is on the soundtrack. I, I can't hear uh, the uh, Earth, Wind & Fire song Reasons without thinking of Casey Moore's character checking her appearance in the lid of a kitchen pot, which is just a beautiful scene in the film. And uh, while her daughter is singing along to to the song as it plays on the radio, she's uh, she's playing with her baby dolls. And it's just a another really beautiful, intimate moment within the film. Um, but once those rights were finally cleared for the film, uh, it was released in theaters in 2007, thanks to the great work of Milestone Films, who've been champions not only of films from the L.A. Rebellion, uh, but also um, n- several other notable independent works. Um, the Exiles was a, a project of theirs. Um, they, uh, they've been uh, dedicated to the work of Shirley Clark, another filmmaker who's, whose work has uh, been discussed in, in these podcasts. With that release in 2007, uh, the film was essentially treated as a new film by many film critics. And so when it came time for critics to write their 10 best lists for the year for 2007, uh, Killer of Sheep uh, made several notable critics um, uh, tally, uh, giving the film some much overdue recognition and really putting Burnett into the spotlight in the way that um, he hadn't been in, so, in such a long time. But to go back to kind of what happened to Burnett in the time between that success in 2007 and then in, in, to go back to when the film was originally completed in 1977, um, he continued to work in collaboration with his um, friends, partners, uh, colleagues from uh, UCLA, uh, he wrote the screenplay and shot Bless Their Little Hearts with uh, Billy Woodbury, uh, another UCLA alum, uh, which is a film that also features uh, actress Casey Brown in what is just a stunning performance. Um, highly recommended if uh, if you're interested in, the, in these films. Uh, Bless Their Little Hearts, which was also distributed by Milestone thanks to um, their efforts to, to reissue the film in 2019. Um, uh, 
uh, can give you access to some of that material. What really should have been Charles Burnett's breakthrough, though, was a film that was released in 1990, a film titled To Sleep With Anger, uh, which featured Danny Glover, who was uh, quite popular at the time coming off the Lethal Weapon uh, franchise films. Um, it was released in, in, uh, by Samuel Goldwyn Company, who were um, kind of key figures within the rise of indie film in the 1980s and into the 1990s, this, this wave of indie cinema that became um, not only kind of critically acclaimed, but also uh, started to, to gain some popular acceptance uh, where you, know, you had films that were earning back, uh, you know, earning back their budget multiple times over. Um, but uh, uh, to sleep with anger is kind of a mysterious family drama, and it and it really seemed like a fish out of water relative to other films at the time. Critics didn't get it; um, they uh, they really they they didn't they couldn't sort of settle into Burnett's pacing, which is a bit slower than a lot of his contemporaries. Um, Audiences didn't respond to it, maybe because the marketing campaign for the film suggested it was going to be a kind of sentimental, folksy tale, like something like uh, Driving Miss Daisy, which had just won the Oscar that year. Um, Or maybe it's just that uh, Charles Burnett's uh, kind of more uh, chilled out approach um, didn't fit at a time when films like Do the Right Thing and Boys in the Hood were gaining lots of attention uh, for very provocative content, um, maybe sensational content, and also you know being very profitable in terms of box office revenue. Um, uh, to Sleep With Anger really sits in contrast to that. But um, it's another great work that um, I encourage listeners to seek out. Um, but Burnett, you know, had a pretty decent career despite, you know, those films not necessarily achieving, um, you know, significant recognition either critically or commercially. He continued to direct films throughout – films and television, I should say, because he actually did a lot of TV films uh, during the, throughout the 1990s and into the early, uh, into the early and mid-2000s. And then it was finally with this re- reissuing of Killer of Sheep in 2007 – that um, the long overdue recognition that that he truly deserved um, came to him and he was finally recognized as one of the great American independent filmmakers um, and a great source of inspiration for um, what we'll see in the early 1980s is a more minimalist approach to filmmaking but films that are actually quite um, comfortable in uh, sharing smaller moments in the lives of, of their characters. So we will continue this discussion in our next episode of Indie Film as part of our series, Deepak Casts.